Do you ever look at your life and wonder to yourself as a Christian, what on earth is God doing in my life? Do you, do you ever have those moments where you, you, you wonder to yourself, am I bearing fruit? Am I living a, a productive life as a Christian? There are certainly times in my Christian walk that these sorts of questions have passed through my mind. Indeed, these questions often arise in me when I see other brothers and sisters in Christ and I look at their life and I, I can see that God is clearly at work in them and clearly their lives are bearing fruit. And I look at my own life and I, I wonder, what is God doing in me? And am I bearing fruit for him? Well, if you've ever had those questions cross your mind, the good news is John chapter 15, Jesus wants us to know that all who are united to him, all who know him to be the source of our life, we will and we are bearing fruit for his glory even when we don't see it and even when it doesn't seem like it one of the things that jesus says in this passage in verse 16 we didn't choose jesus jesus chose us and jesus has appointed us to bear fruit that lasts but not only that in this opening eight verses jesus is going to tell us that his father the vine dresser is committed to pruning our lives so that you and I will always be bearing much fruit for his glory. This is easily one of the most encouraging passages in John's gospel. If you're a Christian who sometimes doubts your effectiveness or your fruitfulness. I have three very simple headings for us this evening, for this morning to consider the illustration, the application, and finally, the motivation. And just as we turn to look at verse 1, just glance back up to the final words of Jesus in chapter 14. Rise. Let us go from here. So if you want to picture the scene in your mind's eye, Jesus and his disciples have just enjoyed the Passover meal, where he's instituted the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says to his disciples, let's go. Let's Leave this upper room. Now, we don't know if they made it out the door. But at some point, Jesus turned to his disciples and said to them, I am the true vine. And you might not know this, but this is Jesus' seventh and final I am saying in John's gospel. He has already said to his disciples back in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He said in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He said in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. He said in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He said in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. And now, as he prepares to leave the upper room with his disciples, he says to them, I am the true vine. And in many ways, a statement from Jesus comes like a bolt from the blue. It it seems to come from nowhere. It's totally unexpected. And so you you pick up the, the commentators and all scholars speculate, what prompted Jesus's mind to turn to this metaphor? Was it perhaps some drinking the fruit of the vine, the wine and the meal? 
Was it perhaps as they stood up and as they opened the door or as they looked out the window, they saw a vine growing in the courtyard? Well, truth be told, we don't know, and it doesn't really matter. Because Jesus has got one purpose in sharing this illustration. He wants his disciples to, one, understand who he is, and he wants his disciples to understand their relationship to him, especially in light of the fact that he's about to leave them. If you, if you grasp the illustration that Jesus has got here in this passage, you're going to grasp what is essential to the Christian life. Our relationship with Christ leads us to bear much fruit. As we've been working through John's gospel, every time Jesus has issued one of his I am sayings, we've been trained by John to, to find the meaning in the Old Testament. And this I am saying is no different. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And for all of his disciples, that image wasn't hard for them to know what he was referring to. If you read the Old Testament, just as we started this sing- service singing, Sunday, who's the vine of God? It's his people, Israel. Time and time again, God speaks of Israel as the vine he took from Egypt and then planted, that he tended and then cared for. Now, the fascinating thing is, if you read through the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so often when God's people are described as the vine, they're described as useless, fruitless, and only worth being burned up in a fire. And here's Jesus, and he he knows all of that Old Testament background. And he turns his disciples and he says to them, I am the true vine. In other words, he says to them, everything that Israel was meant to be, everything that Israel was meant to accomplish and failed to accomplish, I have come to do. I have come to fulfill. I am the embodiment of all that Israel should have been. I am the true Israel of God. I don't know if it struck you that as we were singing Psalm 80, right? Psalm 80 begins with God depicting his people as the vine. And then you get to near the end and instantly the, the vine metaphor morphs into not the nation of Israel, but into a person. And the person of the Son of Man. The psalmist, hundreds of years before Christ came onto the scene, anticipated the day when the Son of Man would say, I am the true vine. Now, in the context of John's gospel, this makes perfect sense. Every time Jesus has said who he is, he said he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament shadows and images. In John chapter 2, he said, okay, there's a temple. Well, I'm the new temple. In John chapter 5, he he spoke often of Moses. He said, well, I'm the new and the better Moses. I am the bread from heaven. In John chapters 7 and 8, Jesus made it very clear that he is the fulfillment of all the feasts and the festivals. He is the fountain of living water. He is the light of the world. And now here in John chapter 15, Jesus is making it clear. He is the true Israel. He is the vine. But this statement of Jesus does not speak just to who he is. It speaks to who we are as well. If he is the vine, 
then who are we? Well, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Just like you would get a vine and the grapes, uh, the branches growing with grapes and their fruit, as we are united to Christ, as we are drawing life from Christ, we are the branches that bear much fruit. Only those united to Jesus will produce fruit. And Jesus wants us to see that he is the true source of all of life. Well, after announcing who he is and making the implicit reference to who we are, look at what he says in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. There's many images of God the Father given in the Bible, but here's another one for you to add. God the Father is a gardener. God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one who tends and cares for the vine and its branches and its fruit. He's the one who's always desirous to see in his people that they bear much fruit, that they live productive lives. Look at the twofold role of the Father that's spelled out in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father, the vine dresser, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So God the Father is in the business as the gardener of cutting off the fruitless and cleaning up the fruitful. He cuts away the lifeless and he cultivates the living. And what I love about this image of God the Father is Jesus wants us to know that not only is he, Jesus, the, the true source of life, but God the Father, he's a hands-on God who's cultivating the life of Christ in you and I so that we can always blossom and flourish. You know, this is great news for us as Christians, especially if you're one of those Christians like me that sometimes wonder to yourself, what is God doing in my life? Am I bearing any fruit? Here's the good news. If you're united to Christ, the source of life, if God the Father is committed to pruning us, then you can be sure you're bearing fruit. You might not see it. You might not be aware of it. But the Father and the Son are committed to it. In the life of his people. Now. Here's what I love about this image. When God sees a fruitful branch. That is a living branch. A a branch that's united to the vine and is bearing fruit. You know what he doesn't say? That's great. I'm happy with it. No, he, he looks at it and he says. Indeed, that is great. But I'm going to cut it back. I'm going to clean it up. Because this branch can produce even more fruit. God the Father is always looking for ways in our lives to cultivate our fruitfulness. Now I need to be honest, I really don't know much about gardening. The only thing that I'm good at is attracting unwanted weeds in my garden. It's a gift. But I don't know how to prune. I don't know how to garden. But here's what's fascinating. If you've ever seen someone who's pruning a bush, 
It looks like a work of destruction. <laughs> you chop off the branches, you chop off the leaves, you chop off some of the fruit, and there it is, scattered all across the floor. To the naked eye, it just looks like mindless destruction. But to the trained eye and to the skilled hand, to the expert gardener, it is done in order to produce a stronger plant and better fruit. Sometimes you look at your life. Sometimes I look at my life. And it doesn't look pretty. It doesn't look beautiful. But to the trained eye and to the skilled hand, the Father's eye and the Father's hand, in providence, he sometimes allows us to go through tough times, challenging circumstances, painful providences, and his purpose is to make us more productive people. It's to make us more fruitful. One of my heroes from church history is Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary to India in the first half of the 20th century. She was there for 55 years and she knew great suffering. One time when she was reflecting on John chapter 15, she wrote these words. What a prodigal waste it appears to see scattered on the floor, the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husband man, there's not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and gain to lose. According to Amy Carmichael, our heavenly vine dresser uses his pruning knife. And yet sometimes the effects are sore, but his ultimate purposes are for our good. We need to understand that with our heavenly vine dresser, there is never a mistake. There's never a cut that is wasted. It is always done with the sole purpose of making us more fruitful and useful. So here's the illustration so far. Jesus is the true vine. The father is the vine dresser who prunes the living branches. But Jesus also says in verse true regarding the father, that he is the one who cuts off the fruitless branch, the dead and the lifeless branch. In fact, just look down at verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Many Christians have read verse 2 and verse 6 and wondered to themselves, is Jesus saying that a Christian can lose their salvation? Is he saying that someone who's connected to him can at some point be cut off by the Father for for not bearing fruit? Now, the answer is an emphatic no. For Jesus has made clear already in John's Gospel, he and the Father, from first to last, from first to last, are involved in the work of salvation, salvation and sanctification. And someone who's saved is always saved and always safe, and always secure. So John chapter 6, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Or what about John 10? 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The good news of the New Testament is that you cannot be united to Christ in a vital and living way and then cut off by the Father. But there is a warning here. There are people who look like they're connected to the vine. But they're dead branches. There are people here who who have this outward visible connection to Christ. But if truth be told, there is no living vital union with Christ. Now, how do I know that? Well, because Judas Iscariot. If you looked at Judas Iscariot's life outwardly, you'd have been absolutely convinced that he was Christ. He was his trusted treasurer. He, he was with Jesus for three years, day in, day out, doing ministry. You'd have thought to yourself, he must be connected to Christ. And yet the reality is you can... Be in church, you can do the Christian things, and the reality is you can be a dead branch. A dead disciple, a lifeless disciple. Now, the reason I'm convinced that Jesus here is is in his mind, he's got Judas in mind, is because of what he says in verse 3. Again, it's one of those statements that comes like a bolt from the blue. He said, already, all of you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And it's really strange that Jesus would say this. He's speaking about pruning and then suddenly speaking about cleaning. Like, he goes from the garden to the kitchen sink. What's going on? Well, Jesus isn't adding anything new here. Actually, Jesus started this upper room discourse by speaking about cleaning. John 13 washing the disciples' feet. And remember what he said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he turned to his disciples, he said, and you are clean, but not one of you. Who was he referring to? Judas. Verse 11 of John 13 says, for he knew Judas was about to betray him. That's why he said it. Not all of you are clean. But here in John chapter 15, Jesus says in verse 3, All of you are clean. What's the difference? Well, Judas has left and Jesus is speaking to his 11 disciples. And just in case you get the wrong idea, when Jesus says that he cuts, the father cuts off the lifeless branches and the dead branches. Yes, it's a word of warning to us, but see in the context when Jesus spoke these words, it was actually a word of encouragement. Far from discouragement. He's saying to his disciples, you are not in the category of Judas Iscariot. And if you want to know if you're a person who's not in the category of Judas Iscariot, well, here is how you can tell. Okay, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Have you believed the word of Christ, the testimony of Christ? Have you believed in Christ for who he is and for what he has done and what he offers, salvation for all who come and believe in his name? 
If you want to know if you are in Christ, well, the word of Christ will have done its work in you and given you new life and salvation. Jesus wanted his disciples to know they're not in the category of Judas who needs to be cut off and burned. But they're in the category of branch that needs to be cleaned and pruned. Now, that in of itself has great meaning and significance. Because Jesus had just said to his disciples, one of you, Peter, is going to deny me. And all of you are going to desert me and disown me. And the good news for those of us who are Christians here this morning is we might be completely cleaned. That is, we might have received salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. But what we all know true in our hearts is that we still fall and stumble. And Jesus says, you need to know the Father is in the business of cleaning those who fall and stumble. The Father is in the business of cultivating life and fruit in the struggling Christian. So, we, so we've got the illustration clear in our minds. Jesus makes it even more clear and, and sharper in verses 4 to 5. But this is where we move actually from the illustration to the application. Okay, so if, if, if that's the illustration, if that's how we're related to Christ as a vine and branches and the, God the Father is a vine dresser, how do we apply this to our life? Well, verse 4 says this. Read verse 4 with me. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't think there's many of us in this church that use the word abide in our everyday conversations. We might say something, you know, I've got an abiding memory. Or you might say, I can't abide that person, meaning I can't stand that person. But the word abide, the idea is when you say, I've got an abiding memory, you've got a memory that lives with you, that sticks with you, that's made its home in your head. Jesus is commanding, the word abide is in the imperative. Jesus is saying, and he says it five times, the word abide five times in these two verses, ten times in this passage, Jesus is commanding us and saying, if you want to know, if you want to know how you live in relationship with me, here's how you do it. You stick with me. You you make your home with me and I in you. He said that back in John chapter 14, verse 23. The Father and I are going to come and make our home with you. But we, we let Jesus come and make his home with us and we make our home in him and with him. You want to know the secret to the Christian life? You know, you want to know the essential command of Jesus if you're going to live out the Christian life? Abide. Live in vital relationship with him. You want to know how you become a productive Christian? Well, it's receiving life from the true vine. It's receiving the care of the Father as a vine dresser. But wrapped up into all of that is also assumed that you and I are sticking, living, making our home with Jesus. Just so that we can get this application clear in our minds, Jesus puts it like this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just earlier this week I was reading 
uh, the, the biography of the late R.C. Sproul, uh, an American preacher and theologian, and uh, written by Steve Nichols. It's, it's excellent. And in the biography, Steve Nichols recalls how in the latter part of R.C. Sproul's life, he lived depending on an oxygen tank. Everywhere he went, he wheeled about this oxygen tank because he had COPD. He had, uh, the, the medical people will know better than me, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. That is to say, his lungs were inflamed, damaged, and narrowed. And so he, could, he couldn't get enough oxygen to go around his body. And so for the latter part of his life, he, he lived in complete and utter dependence on this oxygen canister to help him effectively distribute oxygen around his body. You know, in John chapter 15, Jesus wants us to know that everywhere we go and everything we do, we need to live in complete and utter dependence on Jesus as R.C. Sproul lived with that oxygen tank, if not even more so. Because without Jesus Christ, you and I cannot live the Christian life. We need to be desperately dependent, utterly reliant on Jesus. Now, now I know that when I, I was thinking about this, what does abiding mean? It's hard. But Jesus makes it really easy in verse 7 and really simple. You want to know what abiding looks like? Look at verse 7. If you abide in me, my words will abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here's how Jesus summarizes what it looks like to abide. Pray and read my word. There's a preacher in the free church and his favorite statement is, it's not rocket science. (laughs) And in some ways, abiding in Jesus is not rocket science. It's prayer. It's reading his word. It's letting his word, the word of Christ, dwell richly in us. It's letting his voice dominate. It's letting him set our agenda and our priorities. In fact, just look at the power of his word. How are we clean? How are we made clean? By his word spoken to us. We need to understand that the most powerful instrument that Christ has given us is his word in our lives. It's how Christ comes to dwell richly in us. Now what's fascinating is, right, we often think, when it comes to my relationship with the Word, I need to do all the work. Wrong. Jesus will pray in John chapter 17, Father, sanctify them in your truth. My Word is truth. Paul, writing to the Christians in in Thessalonica, said to them, he rejoiced that they received the Word of God, not as the Word of men, And he was rejoicing that the word was at work in them. Here's the most amazing thing when you abide in Jesus and when you devote yourself to his word. You read his word. You study his word. You sing his word. His word does its work in you and through you. And most of the time you don't even know it. What else does abiding in Christ look like if it looks like your relationship to the word? It looks like prayer. Now this verse, right, is often taken out of context, right? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So can I ask God for a Lamborghini and a mansion and he'll give it to me? Of course he won't. 
But here's the thing. Those who abide in his word, know his word, who pray in line with his will and his word, who ask what he wants to do in our lives as he's revealed in his word, God delights to do it. Do you know how you abide in Christ as you pray? Prayer is the ultimate expression of utter dependence. Prayer, said one hymn writer, is the Christian's vital breath. It is the Christian's native air. I wonder, right, honestly, this is my own Christian life. Is the reason that sometimes I find myself wondering, is God at work in me? Am I bearing fruit? Is it because of my lack of prayerfulness? Is it because sometimes my prayers are not shaped by the content of God's word, but they're just shaped by my own fancies? Because here's the thing, God does answer when we ask in line with his will and in line with his word. He delights to accomplish his plans and purposes in us. And is the reason then my lack of prayerfulness for why I don't feel or sense my fruitfulness? And so this is a glorious invitation from Jesus to give ourselves to his word and give ourselves to prayer. Now we've looked at the illustration, we've looked at the application just very, very briefly, the motivation. Why do we do all of this? Why do we live in dependence upon Christ? The answer is simple as, again, for God's glory. I'm not a gardener, but I do love to see a beautiful garden. And there's nothing more thrilling than when you, you walk by a garden and, and, and you can see that they can real care. But you know the foolish thing is, if you stand there and you just praise the garden... You've missed a point. You know who, who really deserves the compliment? It's the gardener. The one who's given it life. The one who's pruned it. The one who's taken care of it. And you know, in the Christian life, we are those who are called to give God the glory for what he has done and is doing in our lives, in each other's lives. The motivation for living in Christ is we do all things for his glory. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And do you know how we come to be satisfied in Christ? As we open our eyes to who Christ is, the true vine. To what Christ is doing, giving us life. And to what the Father is doing, pruning us and making us more fruitful which literally means to be more like Christ. So why do we do what we do? Why do we want to abide in Christ? Because we want the Father to receive all the glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this amazing invitation to see what the Christian life is all about, to be branches united to the true vine, the Lord Jesus to bear much fruit in him. Thank you, Lord, for your commitment, your care. Thank you that you use painful providences, tough times, challenging circumstances to make us more like Christ, to take away all that hinders and hampers our growth and our productivity as your people. 
Thank you that with your hand, the trained and the skilled hand, there's never a cut that is not done with a purpose of making us more productive. Thank you so much that in Christ we have the source of the abundant life. And thank you that we receive that life by your Spirit. Thank you for his life-giving work for us done at the cross. We pray that, God, even as we go into this week, we would go so conscious that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And we would so depend on Jesus as R.C. Sproul had to depend in latter life upon an oxygen canister that we would live every minute and moment where we can be conscious to you, that we need you, because apart from you, we can do nothing. God, would you revive and renew our prayer lives? God, would you give us a voracious appetite and a hunger for your word? And God, would you be pleased to sanctify us by your word so that we might be more like Christ? And we pray this in his precious and powerful name. Amen.